the more radar, the better as uh, the Ukrainians track down these positions. And even if they don't use artillery, you know, they can use drones in the counterfire fight as long as they get that what's called the uh, the poo site or the point of origin. That's got kind of a silly name. Then they can use anything in their disposal to take it out, including special operations, people on the ground or whatever. So I think uh, the more radar, the better, because then it gives Ukraine options to, to fight back. Yeah, yeah, I just pinged you a picture of the Arthur that's going over. Um, that's the system that's going over from the UK. But yeah, it's just been announced. Yeah, it looks great. Especially if it's mobile, that means it's going to be a lot harder to for the Russians to kill. Okay, thank you, Olsen. Thank you, CJ. And yes, absolutely. This counter-battery stuff, right? That is highly important because um, diminishing the ability of Russian artillery to, to impact Ukrainian troops in Ukrainian positions, it seems to be really crucial as this, uh, as this war develops, right? Uh, that having been said, let's go to uh, Alex without any other things. Oh, you're the only Alex on now. Very good. Alex, go ahead. There is almost always another Alex on, I have to say. It, it makes things a little difficult at times. So, yeah, anyway, uh, thanks. Uh, just kind of going a little bit back there. Uh, it, it's very difficult, and I advise against trying to predict when or how this is all going to end. Nobody knows. It's dependent on so many different variables. How much, you know, material Ukraine supply uh, can get to the front, how much Russia is willing to mobilize and get more to the front. I mean, it's just there's so many factors that just puts this, you know, out of out of our realm to predict really in the, you know, in any meaningful sense. Uh, it all comes down to, you know, Ukraine being able to fight as smart and as hard as it can. Um, and yeah, so... <laughs> Uh, that's the way that goes, unfortunately. Uh, you, know, and, you know, there are professional soldiers who come on here and they've lost count of the amount of times they thought a battle or a war was going to go one way and it goes off in another. It's just, you know, it's best to focus on the things that, you know, you, you, we can address um, rather than kind of thinking about the meta things like that right now. Uh, and, you know, it's in terms of, uh, you know, them learning, I mean, they've proven very adept at being able to learn on new uh, new weapon systems. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I don't think them le- being able to learn is so much a barrier as it is about the kinds of things that we can get them and how you know, the, the risk assessments evolved and losing assets and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, now they've proven very adept in being able to learn. Um, and just kind of a question about the bridge, too. Uh, is there is there any point in really thinking about that until the Ukraine's lines are at least somewhat closer um, so they can expose it to maybe you know, special operations or some sort of, I guess, battery fire? Because uh, I don't think that, the as mentioned earlier, uh, the systems that they do have that are capable of reaching it, A, are, you know, have the capacity to destroy the bridge or, you know, uh, at least make it inoperable um, and are, you know, be, you know, they're, they're too useful. They need them for other things uh, that could happen in the interim. And, and that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Uh, CJ, if you're wanting to take this or Osin. Yeah. Well, I would just say, you know, in the fires world, we have something called the HBTL or the high payoff, high priority target list. And so, you know, the bridge to everyone in this space, we've, we've talked about it a lot. It seems like it would be the highest priority for Ukraine to take out because what is it what is it doing? What function is it giving the Russian army? Well, it's allowing them to bring supplies, weapons, reinforcements up to the front. But the reality is, you know, there's a lot of other targets that can be more um, easily destroyed. And, and you also have to think, too, you know, the as you already point out beautifully, it's it's very difficult to take out. So 
the thing is, it's a double edged sword. By the time that Ukraine is in range of the bridge, they could also destroy everything coming across it without without taking out the bridge. So I think that kind of destruction would only be a, a very last measure of resort. And as we've seen, like Russia already has so many problems moving logistics and supplies that kind of wiping that capability out. It's almost a good thing for Ukraine to keep it open because it allows them to get more battlefield wins. Even though Russia is bringing troops up, they can they focused on anti-air and Russian artillery systems. Their logistics system is already kind of shitty. So they, they want to kind of maximize against Russia's strengths, which, of course, are manpower. But there's a lot of other things on the list that would probably, in my opinion, come above the bridge itself, especially when it's so far behind, uh, at this point, enemy lines. Precisely. Thank you, CJ. Uh, somebody else is noting the Kerch Bridge is symbolic. Logistics is king. Um, and obviously, logistics would be impacted by it, but it wouldn't be critical compared to some of the other things that uh, Ukrainians can do, right? Uh, for example, around Kharkiv and Izium, with their current offensives that they've done thus far, uh, they're now in artillery range of uh, some of the roads that lead from Belkarod to, to Izium as well. All right, uh, Vishnikovsky, go ahead, my cherry friend. Hello, hello. Um, I wanted to briefly touch on a topic that a lady addressed um, half an hour ago um, about the assassination of Putin. I don't want to talk about the assassination of Putin, but there it was mentioned that if we do that, like for instance, assassination of Putin, which I think is out of question because of its difficulty, but if we do this, then there will be a nuclear retaliation. Then we say if if NATO um, sends an aircraft and shoots down Russian aircraft, then will be nuclear retaliation. Um, but NATO is sending military aid. Um, Put Putin already said he's basically at war with NATO or at least it has been dropped here and there that they consider themselves at war with the West. The question that bugs me a bit watching um, this war going on with mostly Ukrainian soldiers um, taking the hit for, for democracy is where do we draw the line for not intervening um, with regards to a potential nuclear retaliation? Is there some somewhere some agreements or some um, inofficial um, agreement on where the line is drawn, what would consider uh, a step too far and that would lead to escalation. I understand if we, for instance, let's say sink or like if the West sinks um, a Russian warship and that would retaliate, uh, lead to a retaliation against an American or other Western warship and escalate further. I completely understand that that can lead to this nuclear exchange in the end, but for lesser aid that we give, for instance, let's say intelligence or um, the delivery of more offensive weapons, such as um, longer range missile strike systems, where where is this red line exactly um, running? Do you guys know? So I don't think anybody really knows, but the, the, the theory of the case is basically the Cold War theory that you don't want to have a shooting war directly between, uh, you know, NATO and uh, Russia, right? So say you don't want to go sinking Russian warships with NATO assets. Uh, however, as long as that isn't crossed, and now we're finally, we finally managed to persuade the Germans around to this, um, you can support either party with whatever you have, right? Uh, and therefore supporting Ukraine by sending them whatever heavy weaponry, that's perfectly fine. Don't send them like ICBMs, 
but you can send them tanks and SPGs, uh, self-propelled guns, and all the other lovely things, uh, and that should be fine. And as long as the Ukrainians are willing to keep on fighting, which clearly they are, because they want their bloody country back, um, that's uh, that's going to keep going on. Um, you don't want to go. You don't want Ukraine to make deep incursions into Russia, obviously. Uh, but we're not at at a, at a point where that is a, that that is a risk, right? And Ukrainians seem to be well aware of that and aren't making such incursions anyway. Uh, you know, some some minor strategic strikes against uh, logistical, sorry, tactical strikes against logistics uh, within Russia, especially the the oil oil reserves, oil storage. Uh, but other than that, they've not really done anything like that. So, so it's all it's all good. Can I put in real quick? Because that kind of goes against the with the point I was making before. So, like you said, no ICBMs, but they're you know they're hitting oil depots deep in Russian area, territory. But they're doing is sort of like undercover, sort of like who did it? Oh, you know. So it's like, so that's acceptable. Like this, it's kind of funny to me. Like that's acceptable. You can strike deep in in Russian territory. It's just how you do it. That's what makes the difference. So like you can't do it with an ICBM, but you can do it by just somebody like you know some partisan, some 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 guy over there doing some blowing up locally. So, Alexandro, the thing is, the the stuff in Belgorod and so Belharod and Bryansk, um, that's not deep in that's not deep in Russia. Uh, those are you know border border areas fundamentally. Uh, the stuff that's happening every, elsewhere, that's very likely Russian partisans doing it to Russian oil depots, right? So, say in Siberia or whatever. Um, and I think there's a very different logic to that when you have a a non-state actor or an effectively non-state actor, a guerrilla, a guerrilla group or anything like that doing things, that's very different from, you know, a, a ballistic missile doing the same things. It just feels different because it is different at the end of the day. So I think that's uh, that's a good point to do. Somebody else is raising, uh, thanks, Sergei, uh, th- that when Turkey shot down a Russian fighter over Syria, that Russia retaliated by banning Turkish tomatoes, right? Um when when small scale interactions like that happen, that's one thing. And the same goes for say Bryansk oil depots. It's very different from launching uh you know med- medium to long range ballistic missile against Moscow. Um I think that that's a distinction that has to be made and that's a distinction that's been made throughout say the Cold War as well. Um let's go to Paul G and then to Kafteli. Paul G, go ahead. Hi, I've got a question for CJ. It's a very geeky uh, counter-battery artillery question, if I may. And it's very quick. Um, the best crews in the world with a, the best uh, and most modern kit, what's the time frame in seconds or minutes, perhaps, uh, from um, detecting an incoming artillery um, barrage to uh, a response without going artillery? Thanks. Hey, yeah, well, first off... Uh... Go Sox. I'm from Boston originally, so I love uh, love your pick there. Secondly, you know, it sort of is uh, depends. I, I can't speak eloquently on the, the British systems that were just given, but here's what I will say. So to, to properly execute counter-battery fire, you need to have an artillery battery ready to go and what's called in position, ready, in position ready to fire, kind of already aiming the right way based on intelligence or reports. So first off, you got to get the guns kind of set up because that's going to cut down a lot of time. But, you know, at least with the, the, the counterfire radars I've seen and used, which are the same ones the Ukrainians have, you can know where the Russians are shooting from before the rounds even land. And that radar is actually going to tell you where those rounds are going to land, too. 
granted, you don't, you know, most artillery missions at the long end only, you know, it's about 50 seconds from the time they, they shoot to the time the rounds land. So not enough time to like uh, get out of the way of where they're coming, but you know, uh, artillery mission, if done correctly, can take two minutes. So you got the 50 seconds from when it's shooting and two minutes. So really we try and aim for about six minutes, but it can be whittled down all the way to three if your guys are shit hot. So, and the, the thing about uh, displacement times and getting out of the way is three to six minutes is almost too fast for anyone to move except for self-propelled howitzers. So the Russians do have a lot of these things, you know, the 2S1s, 2S19s, 2S7s, things like that that can move. But as we've seen, you've probably seen a lot of videos, Russians aren't getting out of the way of artillery because they're, you know, they're thankful if they can get one mission off and then adjust. So really um, six minutes is about what we shoot for, and that's not enough time to get anyone out of the fight. So if uh, the radars are looking, again, you got to have them looking in the general spot and you got to have your guns kind of aiming sort of in the right direction. But as we have these large static fronts and fields, both those two things are very easy to set up. And so the reality is the more radar, the better, um, and the more artillery, the better, so that Ukraine can set aside um, and plan to have artillery units just do counterfire and use the other artillery units to advance, defend, and all those other things. So really that's why the uh, quantity of those systems you know, across the board, I think all NATO countries have given something in the realm of 200. That's going to make a huge difference and allow Ukraine to use their own artillery how they want and then have these other artillery pieces for counterfire. So really effective all the way around. That's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, CJ. Uh, as always, very valuable contributions you make. Uh, let's go to Kafteli and then to Perpetuitatum. Kafteli, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I, w- I have a couple of points. One is about the bridge. Um, so, yes, it is currently very hard to reach it. Uh, to Ukrainians don't have means to begin with. And the existing means are like, um, again, to put it... Uh, it will be hard to give it to Ukrainians um, at this point. But I would look at it as, think of it as engineering competition. So, and I understand military experts, they they know all about wars of the past. Um, what is a little bit harder for them is to figure out how the wars of the future will be done. But that's where engineering comes to play. And Supposing you are, and I'm again dreaming here, maybe this is completely, you know, irrelevant, but um, think of it, you are making sea drones, a company that is making sea drones. Now, even if you make a drone that can go that far with a big enough payload so that nobody knows about it, which means it's submarine or something, and... uh, and uh, be guided, you know, through, I don't know, satellites or whatever. Again, I'm dreaming. I have no clue what I'm talking about. But um, to deliver it exactly where it's needed, right, this munition, it will be, even if you come up with something like that, you won't have an opportunity to test it honestly because, like, what's your target? Where do you have these targets like this? Here, you don't have to invent the target. It's just there. So think about it as like the same way as coding competition. Think about it as engineering competition. Because imagine how many orders you will get to have such a tool, uh, which has proven to be useful. So I would think of it as not something Ukrainians can do, 
but something else anybody else can do. You know, uh, there are out there um, engineering firms that can, uh, some of them have contracts with military. I'm pretty sure that such experience will be pretty valuable for many military out of, out there in the world. So uh, that's, I, I would leave it to that. But um, again, this is, wartime is, uh, you know, the time where innovation gets huge boost, especially in military affairs. That's probably the only time when uh, there are not too many questions asked about why we need this, why don't we just, uh, you know, give money to homeless uh, somewhere else, uh, all that kind of stuff, or increase pay to, I don't know, primary school teachers. Uh, like, there are a lot of ways to spend money, but um, but there are very rare time when... Uh, Anybody understands that the military needs to be well-financed. Otherwise, you will end up dealing with Putin's army at your door. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about was um, um, taking out Putin. You know, the thing is, uh, I try to recall when one country's president was killed by another country. Um, it's very hard to find those. But one thing that comes to mind, and it, it was never confirmed or, or even investigated, I presume, but in 2008, you may remember there was a war in Georgia. And uh, the reason, and some believe the only reason why Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, was not taken by or bombed by Russians was because there were five presidents of five countries flowing there, essentially as human shield. And there was a huge rally, and those five presidents were uh, president of Poland, president of uh, uh, leaders of three Baltic states. I don't uh, remember if they are presidents of prime ministers, but leaders, um, probably all three of them presidents, and President Yushchenko, who was president of Ukraine. And that was the only reason, um, as per some, that Tbilisi wasn't bombed or, or, or stormed or something. Uh, in 2010, what happened is President Kaczynski, Lech Kaczynski, he was every year, he was going to Russia, or I think it's a border between Russia and Belarusia called Katyn. It's close to Smolensk. Actually. It's close to Smolensk. And that year he was planning on 2010. He was planning to visit that place again, with all Poland military leaders, like it was like I believe chief of staff, like the whole leaders of of uh, Poland's state. So they could not land on the airport as initially planned, as they were sent to Smolensk, where by some strange uh, coincidence there was an accident and all that plane crashed, with everybody inside died. Um, it. But Poland didn't declare a war to Russia. Uh, it even, I, I don't even believe that Poland is uh, currently seeing the connections there. But you can see that Poland started, like they started finding alternatives to Russian gas. And they started other activities in many other ways that will have very, very, very long-term impact on Russia. So... Yeah, these things um, 
I mean, uh, it's, it's something states should not do, honestly. Uh, like taking, trying to take out the president because it's not coming for, I, it's hard to understand these ethics. I, I don't even know who writes the code of ethics for those, but it's never a good idea to, because presidents come and go, the nations and relationship between them stays. And it will take a very, very long time for Russia to basically to sell anything to Poland, <laughs> to, to Poland um, anytime soon. So that's, that would be, I'll leave it to that. Um, I think, uh, I don't know. Again, maybe I'm completely off mark, but I see those connections there. Actually, when uh, Lech Kaczynski died in that accident, so-called accident, uh, somehow, by some miracle, there was a volcano eruption in Ireland, I believe, but somewhere else, which prevented other European leaders to even come to his funerals, which which was, uh, yeah, now we see that those leaders were kind of um, they had good relations with Putin, obviously. Now, I understand Volcano is a big problem for um, uh, to fly, basically. A lot of flights were cancelled. It was yeah. big, big, big drama. Alex, it was the drama. Yeah, but they did not want to piss off Putin, obviously, because for some reason, there is, they also saw a connection between death of Kaczynski and... Uh, like Putin, they didn't, somehow they thought that it would make Putin sad if somebody of European leaders would attend to his funeral. Well, um, again, this is my speculation. Don't take it. To, I, it's just um, like, I have no idea. It's, it's probably something for historians. It would be a very interesting uh, book to write about. Uh, there are lots of book, books published every year. I don't know if anybody wants to. Right, that story. I think it would be a fascinating story. But maybe that time will come too. That time um, will come too. Alex, I'd just like to remind the audience that when uh, Yaroslav Kaczynski, uh, Lech Kaczynski's twin brother, uh, when is, who is now the current Polish Deputy Prime Minister, went to Kiev together with Morawiecki, Fiala and Jansha back in, what was this, mid-March, late March? You know, the first, the first trip to... Uh, Kiev by heads of government of um, of European states. Um, he, when after he made that speech, uh, Dmitry Ragozin, the head of Roscosmos, who I think was the deputy prime minister of Russia around 2010, maybe a bit later than that, um, on Twitter invited Yaroslav to Smolensk, right, which is effectively a veiled threat, let's say. Yeah. You, can, you can comment on this a bit more if you want to, Kofteli. See, even Russians see that connections, even though, like, everybody, like, there was a commission, and uh, um, I think the commission did not confirm anything, like, w- without any doubt. They said it could be this or it could be that, or but they did not accuse directly. Now Rogozin comes up with this self-revelation. Sorry, Kofteli, I think we have, uh, we've lost you. Sorry, I call you by your last name because... Um... We have so many Alex's about, but I think we've lost your connection. Either yours is acting up or mine is acting up. Sorry about that. Uh, let's go to all your spaces. Go ahead. Uh, hey, so I kind of had uh, a question about the um, 
the air defense uh, maybe options that that could be available. And I know that uh, CJ is a uh, artillery, a military guy. I don't know if there's anybody in here that's like uh, a little bit more specifically versed in the air defense systems. But this, um, let me see here. Um, the uh, Raytheon, the ANMPQ. Uh, 64 is something that's been listed as being delivered to Ukraine. Uh, I don't really have any context, and that's a small portable, uh, like a 3D X-band radar system, kind of a medium-range system. And I don't know what context that that's being applied in, um, if it's just for warning or if it's uh, in, able to control like a medium-range air defense system. But there, so there's there's been a development. I don't know some years ago. Uh, with Raytheon and their um, ability to use that system to control uh, AM, AMRAM missiles, uh, which was typically a, an air-to-air platform that's uh, been widely used by NATO countries for a number of years. Uh, so, but apparently, they've been modifying this and, and integrating this into a into a surface into an air defense from from a ground launch platform. Um, and so I was just wondering if anybody could uh, speak to that. I know that that CJ earlier said said you know they have the uh, the man pads, the, the shorter range stuff, but um, and just in as it applies to kind of more of a layered air defense. I know they have some S three hundreds in Ukraine for like the higher altitude stuff, and I for a while I was seeing like how many occasional reports of how many sorties you know uh, Russia was was flying against Ukraine, and that doesn't seem to be something that I can consistently get information on. But I think that's a, a big component um, to, you know, how effectively, you know, Ukraine's going to be able to uh, defend and then and and then counter uh, Russia's aggression uh, is is kind of being able to, you know, deny them that um, I guess close air support or maybe just more air support in general. I, I know that that's not part of the Russian doctrine in the same way that it is for the West and NATO. Um, but uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm kind of just rambling here. There's there's kind of a lot of things that I'm that I'm bringing up with this uh, question. But um, anyway, I was just curious as to if like that that uh, MPQ system and the, and the possibility of it being used for like the medium range uh, AMRAM um, systems. CJ? Yeah, great question. Save I mean, me, please. Oh, no. Uh, you bring up a lot of great points. So with that, the Q, the 64 radar, you know, I've seen it a couple of times in action. Really what it's going to give the Ukrainians is early warning, right? So they have a very thick, and you, you talked about integrated air defense. So for everyone's awareness, you know, there's, you know, the battle space is 3D, obviously, but there's also different ranges incorporated with that. Uh, and, and so what does that mean? So that means that all these sorties that are actually still increasing are, you know, a very large amount of Russian sorties. As far as I'm aware, almost all of them are conducted from the Russian border and they have to use long range ballistic missiles or sort of longer range anti-radar uh, missiles. And what that means is these things have like a real, relatively high dud rate. And so Russia is scared of the Ukrainian air defenses and is shooting it from way deep into their own borders because they're worried more about their planes getting shot down. And that's why Ukraine is successful at shooting so many down. So the thing to keep in mind is the whole battlefield right now is layered with a lot of SHORAD or short range air defense in the form of Stingers and SAMs, all these other things. However, you know, the anti-air defense that the Ukrainians have is only good for, you know, up to about 10 kilometers. And as you know, airplanes are very fast and they can close that gap very quickly. 
So the difficulty in shooting down a plane is really knowing where and when it's going to enter your ring where you can shoot it. Uh, because it's one thing to pop up with a Stinger missile and hit a helicopter flying by. It's another thing to try and intercept a fighter or something else coming in, you know, at Mach 2, Mach 3 or whatever. So really, the more radars they can get, the more they can develop the picture and see if these aircraft are going to fly within. But as you correctly pointed out, Russia doesn't normally use close air support. Uh, they do use some, though. I want to point that out, that they're not following their own doctrine at all and to the point where we haven't seen really any close air support other than uh, unguided rockets from Russian helicopters. And even then, they're basically staying behind hilltops, shooting up at an angle 5, 7K away, because, again, they're trying to stay away from the air defense. And it will it's not effective at all, in my opinion. So the more they can find these aircraft, the, the higher likelihood they can shoot them down. But Russia is so scared, it wouldn't even necessarily matter if they could shoot them down further because they're staying so far away. And that's why the Russian Air Force, while they've had some you know, successful, quote unquote, strikes against infrastructure, that's about all they can use their aircraft for because they're too afraid to come in and actually uh, hit the Ukrainian military units on the ground. Thank you uh, for that explanation. I uh, appreciate that. It's always nice to hear from uh, people who are knowledgeable about this stuff in these spaces. I think it's a great resource. And I just uh, a little bit more about that that uh, 64 radar system that, that operates, I guess, in the X band. It, it does seem to be a networked system. And one of the um, things that it's listed as being able to detect and or defend against, I guess, if it's if it's networked with some kind of a uh, an active defense is uh, cruise missiles. And I, and like you said, there uh, Russia is launching a lot of these things. And this latest, uh, what was it, yesterday or the day before, the last I saw was about 18. Um, I, I don't know if these were cruise uh, or a combination of cruise or ballistic missiles, but uh, it was a, approximately 18 of these things were launched against Ukraine. A lot of targets uh, in the West were hit with regards to this um supposedly infrastructure that would support the the defense uh items that um you know Ukraine is receiving from these other countries and so i just you know uh, it it looks like that has some capability to uh now i don't know in what context that radar system if it's just being used for warning or or if it could be uh i mean it can be used to to control other types of systems um this uh uh, what are they calling it? They're calling it NASAMS. Uh, N-A-S-A-M-S um, is a ground-based air defense system, and that looks like it, it should be capable of – and I think they were – the last I saw of the 18 that were launched, and I'm, these were launched from apparently you know a bomber-type aircraft, uh, probably still operating within Russia's borders – uh, but it, I think I was seeing that they were thinking that maybe like eight of those, so um, you know, not quite half had been intercepted. Um, of course, I don't know maybe if they were intercepted or, like you said, there is a bit of a failure rate with some of those systems. Uh, anyway, so I just, um, yeah, it would be uh, because that that is obviously critically important to the efforts there, the the ability to get uh, these uh, weapon systems that are donated by NATO and the and and U.S. Uh, you know into the theater. And so, anyway, it's just always a little bit disconcerting when you when you see these. Um, um, large scale kind of strikes with the standoff weapons. And so just hoping there's, there's something more that they can do to defend against that. Yeah. And I'll just real quickly point out, and this is, you, you bring up a lot of great points. It's, we don't really normally talk about it in the space because it's a little bit into the weeds, but there's a difference between a ballistic missile and a cruise missile. You know, a ballistic missile is a large missile that fires and flies in a ballistic flight path. So a, a parabolic 
flight path that you can intercept at the beginning or the end relatively easily if, if you know when it's launched. Cruise missiles, on the other hand, are much harder to shoot down because they can cruise. They can fly around, uh, you know, left, right, up, down, and they fly what's called, uh, you know, nape of the earth, real low. So they're hard to detect on um, by radar or shoot down quickly enough. And that's what you see, like the caliber missiles and the ones launched from the sea. The, the reality is they don't have an endless supply. That's why, you know, they're only able to shoot 18 at a time. And I think half those were just ballistic. So the Tachka basically equivalents. And so I think, you know, with all the intelligence sharing and the radars that Ukraine is getting, they're knowing which ones to go after. They know to shoot down the Tachkas, and you've seen that quite successfully on the Ukrainian side. And they know sort of that there's not, it's going to be much more difficult to shoot down caliber and other cruise missiles. But that's why the air, uh, air raid sirens are so effective and whatnot. And at this point in time, they can do the best they can to, to hold them off. But the reality is, long story short, if Russia has to fire missiles from further and further away, either because they're scared and or because Ukraine is more effective, it means those missiles will also be less and less effective over time, which is which is great. Thanks again, CJ. Appreciate it. Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks, CJ. Um, Daniel, you can feel free, feel free to go ahead. Daniel Arfire. Okay. Uh, sorry. I developed, unlocked my phone. No worries. Carry uh, on. Okay. Uh, <laughs> before I get out of office, I saw again... A Russian blogger inside Russia is in Rostov of Don. And uh, <laughs> oh, he is very, very, very pissed <laughs> and very scared and uh, very worried because he explains not only uh, the streets around the Rostov of Don are now patrolled by. A policeman with uh, Kalashnikovs, and they check all the cars, all. There are quakes of cars. Uh, but he said people, after two months, already snapping. He said uh, all the people uh, wearing uh, their mask, like uh, social mask, all is okay, all is in order, we have no problem, nothing affects us. But in fact, snapping for everything. Uh, you can see in his voice, he's very, very worried. And he's very worried about the 9th of May. He's very worried because he's very close to the front. He's very worried because he have bad news from the front. And if you add to this, all Ukrainian outlets would say uh, the Ukrainian army started a counteroffensive in Izium and uh, Kherson, can I say, as the best news of this day. So <laughs> Russians are pissed off and Ah, that is a very, very, very interesting stuff. People are not afraid to say what they think. They, they are no more afraid in Russia. From Putin, obviously. That's all. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. Um, I hope, and I'm guessing it was probably the partisan activity in places like Moscow and 
you know, various cities around Russia starting to set things on fire that, that ended up with these, um, you know, police checks on the streets of uh, rostov Nadonia. And he's right, right? Uh, Rostov is very close to the front. It's <laughs> the, the Rostov Oblast borders uh, Donetsk Oblast, right? And uh, it's good that they're finally getting afraid. I will just correct you ever so slightly. The counteroffenses are reported in Izum and Kharkiv, not Izum and Kherson. I know it's hard to keep track. Uh, Kharkiv and Kherson do start with the same letter, and it's sometimes, you know, sometimes confusing for people when they're not uh, reading them out. But just so you know, Kharkiv and Izum, not um, not necessarily around Kherson. Of course, Ukrainians have been uh, mounting a counteroffensive between Mykolaiv and Kherson for a while now, so it doesn't really make any any much of a difference. If any of our guys, uh, like Osin or CJ or MP, if you want to comment on what Daniel just said, feel free to. Otherwise, we'll move on to Mark. Uh, but thanks for the news, Daniel. And I'm glad that it's finally breaching the home front that we were hoping we would have breached, you know, eight weeks ago. CJ, if you want to go ahead, go ahead. And then we'll go to Mark. Yeah, yeah as everyone's correctly pointed out in this space time and time again, if you know, if you hear coup talk, kind of the not listen, and I, I couldn't agree more, that kind of thing you're not going to hear about on Twitter from some guy that just started a Twitter account. However, you know, real information that the security situation is changing on the ground is Russia. Now that's some valuable information. So yeah, we appreciate you uh, chiming in here. And if you have any other updates, that would be super helpful. Thank you. Thanks, CJ. Mark, go ahead. Yes, hi. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank the host and all the co-hosts for um, keeping this uh, space open 24-7. I know there must be a lot of personal sacrifice behind the scenes that we can't, we aren't even aware of to dealing with it. So thank you there. Um, I just had a question about the, uh, the missiles that in Russian inventory, I've seen reports that the U S is burning through its uh, javelin missiles pretty quickly. And, and I was just wondering, is there any way to tell that maybe they're also running through their inventory quickly? Thank you. CJ, do you have an idea on it or maybe MP? Yeah, well, I'm sure um, Osin could speak better on it. But, you know, I've seen a lot of reports that they're almost running out and things like that. I wouldn't try and listen to that. I would kind of look at the actions on the ground you're seeing. So what are we seeing? We're seeing a higher and higher dud rate, which is uh, indicative that they're using older and older missiles, which means they're running lower. And also they're using missiles that are supposed to be used against sea targets when they're using them against land. So that's another sign. I mean, granted, it makes sense. Ukrainian Navy is you know, pretty much doesn't exist right now. So that's not a big deal. But when you add all these little indicators together that they're running low, you can kind of paint a picture of what's going on. So I wouldn't say they're uh, they're out yet, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they wouldn't be able to do it much longer. Yeah, and no, I'd back, I'd back you up on that one there, CJ. Um, there's quite a lot of evidence coming out that they're, they're using older stocks. There's more failures. Um and they're also bringing a lot of artillery and stuff like this out of out of the stores, which is absolutely ancient, like older than the stuff that they've got at the moment. So this this would also indicate that they're maybe having to bring older stock out because the the ammunition that they've got maybe can't be used, and or the stocks of ammunition that they're going to have to move on to cannot be used in the, the more modern types of artillery that they have. So they're now going to have to return. Refer like result to the older artillery, which they have more stock, probably a long, a bigger stockpile of from from the Cold War and stuff like that. Okay, thank you. And MP, if you want to comment further on this, feel free to go ahead. Yeah, I, I want to comment. So our understanding is this is based on the Finnish military intelligence is that caliper 
missiles, what we saw the cruise missiles, uh, what they have shot, and uh, let's go to Iskander and, and Toshka missiles, which are ballistic missiles. So they have used too many of them, uh, like two-thirds of their stock for Caliber and Iskander. We don't know about the Toshka right now, so it's uh, they have used way too many what they have planned originally. Cheers. Um, yeah, in other words, I just want to say, also just one second, uh, they can't restock those, right? They need equipment and supplies that is sanctioned against. Um, Osint? Yeah, what I was going to say, also, they're under so many sanctions that where they can't really get the get the bits and pieces that they need to re- to replenish these stocks. Like, they're, they're, they'll, be needing, they'll be needing thing parts from other parts of the world to... to to make some of this, and and now that the, the, there's such tough sanctions, the only way that they'll really be able to to restock and get new ammunition is if the Chinese start giving it to them. Now, if the Chinese start supplying them, we'll know because it'll be once they start dropping them, the, the bombs are easily distinguishable where they come from. Put it that way. Um, so. We'll find out if they get resupplied. At the moment, it's not looking like they're going to be able to get resupplied. And if they do, everyone would know where, where the originality of these uh, missiles or wh- whatever such has come from. So, yeah, they're, they're kind of running themselves into the ground, as, as I would say. Cheers, Osint. Yeah, I think uh, we've covered all the aspects of that question now. Uh, all your space? So I wanted to uh, ask about the Victory Day Parade and if anybody is familiar with um the history of that like post uh 2014 i i know that there had been some i guess token representation from other countries uh in that parade because of i guess kind of i don't know what it used to represent i i suppose some may argue that it that it still represents uh what it used to represent although that's probably debatable but um i mean there were even uh a couple former U.S. presidents. I don't know if they were sitting presidents when they attended that or not. They may have been former when they attended. Uh, I believe Obama was one, and I think maybe Bush. I don't know which Bush was another one. Uh, there was a small um, a contingent of, I, I think, uh, British uh, soldiers that, that may have taken place in that. This is all prior to 2014, of course. So anyway, my – and so I don't know. Is there – if to people that have maybe been following that the, these annual Victory Day parades, if there's a um, like a speech component, I guess, and I've seen this alluded to recently, where you know it's maybe been speculated as to uh, what Putin may speak about. So I'm assuming there is a speech component to this, and I just was curious as to whether or not since 2014, if it, in this speech component, that in this Victory Day parade, uh, if, if he's been making reference to the situation in Ukraine, um, and I, I would, you know, I'm, I'm there, part of me thinks that there, there may be some uh, resistance or, or uh, hesitancy, not that it really accounts for much, of the Russian military, because they are probably pretty much, you know, solely directed by Putin uh, to uh, to, there might be some resistance to them to want to kind of, in a way, redefine wh- what this Victory Day parade w- was supposed to stand for. Of course, there, this line about everybody's being Nazis now is is, I mean, so who who knows where where that really goes? But I was just curious if, you know, to to what um, the thoughts might be on on this this upcoming Victory Day parade. Uh, anyway. 
So I'll, I'll be very brief and just say I looked up the 2015 uh, Victory Day Parade attendees from foreign countries. The only Westerner on the list is the president of Cyprus. Uh, everybody else is, you know, non from non-allied countries. So the, the president of Serbia was there and a bunch of people from like Central Asia and Cuba, Venezuela, whatever. You know, Mugabe was there apparently. Um, so the top level ones basically didn't go from the West. Uh, and I think that's probably true ever since. Apparently this year, there won't be any high-level foreign representatives at all. Um, I'll pass it on to CJ. Oh, Osin first, and then CJ, yeah. and then Kafteli. He, he, he did mention... Um, he mentioned that... He, 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 Silver, sorry. Yeah, you asked or you mentioned, was there British soldiers that uh, have marched in this? And you, you're right. In 2018, there was a battalion from Welsh Guards... And they went out there because it was the 65th anniversary of the um, of the the end of World War Two, and or the the victory of World War Two, as you call it. So, yeah, there has been British soldiers, but I can assure you, I don't think there'll be any British soldiers or even any British contingency shown face at this because um, all the British government, all the British MOD, all anybody of any kind of. Um, authority here has been officially banned from Russia. So if they do go, I imagine they'll probably be arrested. So, yeah, well, I don't doubt we'll see Brits. I doubt we'll see Americans. Um, CJ can maybe confirm that there was probably a, a group of Americans there in 2018 when the Brits were there. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure. It was the first 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 battalion Welsh Guards that went. Cheers, Austin. CJ? Yeah, so I've been a, not an avid fan, but I have watched out of morbid curiosity every year since 2015, uh, really just to look at all the Russian military equipment and kind of see the difference between what they're parading around and what they're actually using on the battlefield, which is a huge gap. You know, these parades have T-14s, T-90s, things that are barely used in combat, so it is quite interesting. What I did want to ask or bring up is the fact in the speeches, as you, as you asked, a lot of times they talk about the big military successes of the year, mainly their exercises, mainly Zapad or whatever military district of Russia has had their exercise that year. And so, again, the thing that's always brought up at these parades is that Russia is under an existential threat, and it comes from the West, and it's going to come in the form of a NATO invasion of Belarus and Western Russia, which, as we all know, is not anything NATO wants or is planned for, but is, for whatever reason, what the whole Russian military was built around recently. And that's also why they're not, they don't have a good offensive capability but I guess I wanted to throw it back to the group and ask, you know, sort of the controversial news that they're going to have Ukrainian POWs in this parade. Was that something done in 2014 before I started watching and or did they have Georgian or Chechen prisoners award any other Victory Day parade? I hadn't heard anything about it. It's going to be pretty interesting if they do in a, in a terrible way. But just yeah. To ask. yeah, no, I've been looking into this because there's actually talk of the, the two Brits being paraded Um at this parade, which if they do, is absolutely sickening. Um, it'll also be just another war crime um, that they document themselves. You know, they're not they're not that clever at some things, but if they if they really want to go and publicise their war crimes, then on you go because it's, it's it'll be well in the public domain to be used when it needs to be put in front of a court. Um, you're not allowed to parade war criminals, especially not on a a big um, national day parade like that. It's absolute scumbag material, if you ask me. But they probably will. They, yes, they, I have been seen through some channels that I watch. There was even talks of 
parading um, POWs in Sevastopol when they had a when they have a parade there. Um, there seems to be a lot of traction picking up around of this of the parading of POWs as some form of trophy that they have managed to. I don't know. It's rather sickening, and if 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 they go ahead and do it, then go on, publicise your own war crimes. But it's um, yeah, it, it's it is very worrying, CJ, and I wouldn't put it past them um, because bearing in mind they are going to be losing, they are going to be short of quite a few people, so they're going to need to make the numbers up somehow. And if they're planning on making them numbers up with with POWs, then they're they're sick. They're sick. That's all I can say on that. I don't know if Dominic's got anything. Uh, not really. I agree with you, uh, but I will pass it on to Spring. Spring, bom dia. Go ahead. Bom dia. Uh, just to, I was just checking the death parade in 2020, just to, so we can have an idea of type of um, of attendings were there that in that parade in Moscow. President was only the Serbian one, the South Osseta. The president of Tazakistan, Turkmenistan. No, it was the minister of defense of Turkmenistan. The president of Moldova, the president of Kyrgyzstan, and the president of Kazakhstan. All the others uh, were ministers of defense of Hungary, um, India, and Indonesia. So that you have um example. The other ones were at lower levels represented there. So I think after 2014, it has been uh, lowering the grade of people being there. Sorry, Spring, did you say South Society? Can you double check? Yes, wait, uh, I just lost the page, but I will let me try to recover it. It was the 2020 parade. I will tell you the name because the name was there. Okay. I will unmute myself. Um, my, mute myself, and then I will be back with that. Let's go to you, CJ. In the meantime, and then Spring and Kefta, you can talk about this. Yeah, I just wanted to thank everyone for the great talk today. I got to head in to work, but I really appreciate everything you do. Keep it going, Slava Ukraine. Go give it to them, Ghana. Go on, Heroim Slava. All right, Spring. Have you uh, found the page yet? In the meantime, we can hear from Luis uh, just to make sure we don't lose the Portuguese voice. <laughs> Hi, boa tarde. Uh, it's not bon dia, it's Watarde. Well, yeah, uh, we have the uh, afternoon. Um, I, I just wanted to comment on the thing with the parade and the prisoners. Um, I read today uh, interview from a reliable source um, with the soldier from Azovstal. They, they uh, had made to, to make connection and interview him. And he said that uh, it is planned to uh, let parade the prisoners of war and uh, also have Azov battalion members uh, in cages uh, being uh, drawn uh, from uh, in the parade. So it will definitely be disgusting and just war crimes more. Yeah, I mean, exactly, right? But we... We don't really expect much better from them anymore, do we? Um, Spring, if you found the thing yet, please go ahead. Yes, I found it. Um, it says, President of South Ossetia, Anatoly Biblov. Biblov. 
I can DM this to Alex. Uh, thank you. That's okay. No, th there is no need. Uh, the thing is, you know, South Ossetia is not recognized. So I'm even surprised other presidents uh, allowed themselves to stand uh, next to him. It's like, you know, declaring you a president or me a president or anybody on this space yes. a president. It's, Alex, be it a can be president. my taxi driver. It can be, you know, janitor of the office I'm working uh, at. It can be a cook. Anything can be a president, you know. It's not recognized. Alex, so, Alex, yes. maybe, maybe we could send the, the... Were you here when we had the prince, the African prince yesterday? Maybe we can send him as the, the president and he can assassinate Putin while he's at it with the great <laughs> idea that he had. Now, the, the, the reason is, uh, if you note, um, even Lukashenko or uh, like leaders who are kind of in cl has close ties with Russia, even them, they never want to be associated somehow with these... Uh, Bibi lover, and this could be another reason why anybody, nobody else wants to, you know, visit this parade. I think this year Russians won't even invite anybody because they already know the answer. Uh, nobody yeah, will be there. Why, why humiliate yourself? And uh, so they will uh, talk to I don't know the whole world against them. In that sense, Third World War is already on. Like it's Russia versus it's Putin versus everybody else. Um, that in a way, this is, uh, this is World War. Uh, as for, you know, parading um, prisoners of war, that would be a war crime. Um, I don't know if Russians do that. Uh, I don't think anybody is doing that at all. Uh, but, um, like, it's hard to predict what they will do. But it's clearly very... Uh, it's violation of uh, any human rights... And there are, you know, all those conventions about how you should be treating prisoners of war. Um, Alex, yeah, that's all. Uh, just, just let me add this. If we saw something from Russia that is consistent, is that they are um, consistently violating civil rights and uh, prisoners of war and civilians in Ukraine. They don't care about it. Yeah, I don't think Alex would be Agreed. surprised either. All right. Thanks, guys. Um, let's go to David. David, go ahead. Bonjour from Florida. Uh, good morning and good afternoon if you're listening somewhere else. I wanted just to speak on the parading of prisoners of war. It's a clear, uh, it's a clear act of genocide. It's dehumanizing of combatants. Uh, so I, I think it's rather more interesting or might be more insightful to look at why the Russians keep uh, getting the most apoplectically disgusting thing they can think of and spreading it across their friendly media who then get it echoed into our decent uh, spaces of information and we deal with it every day. Why are they up, up in the... Uh, why are they looking to even put, uh, conduct more outrages, even more disgusting than the rape and murder of men, women, children, elderly? Um, why are they doing that? Because they're losing so pathetically in their actual war. And so typically, according to their failed Soviet doctrine, they will now turn to the information space and try and up the ante there and have us all piss in our pants as they sit in Moscow and have their little circus parade. And all it is is a show of strength and intimidation for their own people. The main propaganda purpose of this shit is for their own people to keep them cowed and in line, the same in North Korea. They know, we know they don't have the stones to do it. 
it's to keep their own people cowed and intimidated with this veneer, this Potemkin's village of ferocity. I can't, um, I can't bear to think of people of goodwill listening to this shit in their media every morning, no matter where they pick it up, that a new outrage, or we should prepare to be even more disgusted at their genocide. No, we should see what they're doing and realise they're panicked and they're throwing what they can and hoping it will stick. So I'm glad they're worried. I'm glad they're threatening to do more disgusting shit. Um, whether they come and do it or not is immaterial. They're barbarians. So let's just hold our nerve, not wring our hands too much and uh, support each other. If you're here, you should really go to Maria Aid. I can't spell it, but you can read it above in the space. Donate some money. That's how we get back at this. We fight the war on the ground. We don't... Uh, worry ourselves to inaction uh, it's part of their despair distract <clears throat> despair distract and destroy method they, they just want to distract us and have us run around like headless chicken um, so let's focus on the east and how badly they're losing and how pitiful it must be that they need to launch an attack on the azov style plant i see that as a severe sign severe sign of panic um in what remains of their leadership because it's just going to be a graveyard you can't go down six stories in concrete and hope to survive so it's more than likely just a uh, propaganda film but uh, i'd like to talk about maybe any action that was down in that area overnight if you know anything or perhaps anything from odessa i know all had those be in the space thank you for the space uh bonjour to the portuguese here listening and uh donate to maria aid thanks for keeping the space going uh Domin, thank you very much david thank you very much david uh, i'd like to echo lots of your words but i'll echo one in particular anybody who wishes to help and help 